and invite Tom Halls to bring us our message from, his, from God's Word. Morning, church. Hope everyone is doing okay today. Excuse me while I organize my technology here, such as it is. We're going to look today at a book in, into the book of Leviticus. Now, that's not normally a book we would uh, go look at during our daily devotionals normally. It's the book of the law. But it does have many vital principles for today in how we are to view God and how we are to be dependent and acknowledging of his providence of our lives. So, but before we get started, let's, would you bow with me in prayer? We'll ask the blessing upon uh, this time together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word that is rich across the centuries. We thank you for your, the principles that you will give us and that you would be in the midst, Lord, of our worship this day, that it will be aimed, that you would be glorified, and let the words be yours. Uh, may you increase and myself decrease, Lord. We pray this and to open our minds and eyes and hearts to your, to your spirit and your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I grew up on a farm, and I hated it. My grandfather was the farmer, and when I was old enough, I would help him out, particularly at the times of harvest. I'd be out there in the hot summer days, maybe some of you have done this yourself, trying to keep up with the skilled laborers who are moving through the harvest rather quickly, because how you make your money is how much you harvest. One memory in particular that I have that is particularly poignant is that of cling peaches. Now, I love cling peaches. Cling peaches are big. They're like almost as big as a grapefruit if they're grown right. And they're delicious. They're absolutely fantastic. But they have one annoying attribute, and that is they are covered in fuzz. Absolute, the most itchy, pervasive, nasty stuff I have ever, ever encountered in my life. So you'd pick the peaches, you get the fuzz on your hand, you're sweaty, you wipe, your, you wipe the sweat from your brow, and there's that fuzz gets everywhere. I never understood how, at the end of the day, I could itch in so many places just from picking clean peaches. It was nasty work. Many a summer night I would sit there in bed and I would say, I'd be exhausted. I'd say, how long, Lord? How long do I have to put up with this? Get me out of here. Get me out away from this. Well, years later, with the harvest long past in my, in, my, in my past, I went to college. I got married and moved away. And I swore I would never return to the valley, basically based on those memories of working on the farm. It was not one of my fun things to do. But when I returned, I returned years later with a young family. When I did return, I had a totally different perspective. In my youth, I had only seen the effort and the pain and the strain. Working in 100 plus degree heat, lugging 60 and 70 pound lug boxes of peaches and stacking them 10 to 12 feet high on the back of a truck. It was awful. 
But these things clouded the benefits that my grandfather was teaching me. He was teaching me the lessons of hard work. I did not see God's providence in the discipline being taught. I only saw my circumstances, of which I rebelled quite loudly. Years later, as I worked to earn a living, I found the blessings of these lessons. So today, we're going to look at a portion of Leviticus that speaks to what it means to be a holy people, the blessings and the disciplines of God that God gives us, and the danger of being consumed by our circumstances and ignoring the responsibility of hard work. So turn in your Bibles, if you will, with me to Leviticus 20, uh, verses 22 through 26. The Bible, God's word says, You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I am driving out before you, for they did all the things, all these things, and therefore I detested, detested them. Now back again to look a little bit of the book of Leviticus. It's really a book. Lots of times when we read it, it's a book of you shalls and you shall nots. It's legalistic and it's highly technical based on the lifestyle of these ancient Jews. It provides a vital link between the Jewish legislative laws and the view of atonement and the Christian view of salvation. If you want a commentary on Leviticus, you can do no better than looking at the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Within the context of Leviticus, worship is centered on the altar, the sacrifice, which are symbols pointing to the one great sacrifice of Christ. But God is also setting up a perfect, independent society here and in the book of Deuteronomy. Civically, physically, politically, and socially, if these precepts and commands and statutes are followed, every need of a separated and prosperous nation will be taken care of. However, it would take obedience and it would take faith. At this point in Leviticus, God is speaking of what he will do, the blessings that they will receive, and the warning of the dangers that await them. This doesn't sound much like prosperity, but that's really what he's setting up. Like many think of prosperity, they don't think of providence. Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, puts providence very simply, the governing and preserving of God's creation for his glory. Very, very, very well put. Matthew Henry summarizes and states that he believes that Leviticus 20, these passages, is the core of the entire Leviticus book. And he goes on to say in his commentary, he, in this passage, they are describing the people's dignity, their duty, and their danger. Here God's commands are to be kept. He is to keep all his rules that the land might not vomit you out. That's quite a phrase, I think, vomit you out. Very descriptive. The possession of the land itself is not necessarily a nurturing environment. It can be hostile dry, forbidding, desert-like, much like our valley was in the early 1800s. 
But God gave dominion over the land for man to care for it and for the land to be fruitful. And he gave man a mind for a creativity to deal with the hard work ahead. Starts in Genesis 2.15 where God takes the man and puts him in the garden and gives him a specific command. Work it and keep it. Now the emphasis of work it and keep it means maintain it. Keep it running. Look to the longevity of it. Then it will prosper you. Too often we think of prosperity in the matter of things, money, stuff. This is the short-term view of provision. And too often it obscures the long-term view of perpetuating longevity. Nurturing the land as God intended instructed Adam is the long-term. It's all important maintenance of the land is the holy perspective. The key for caring for the land is understanding that it will take care of you. Every farmer knows this. It also infers that if not set apart, special or holy, if you will, the land will in fact reject you. This can happen through pestilence, drought, war, natural disasters. The Old Testament is full of nations who ignored God's providence and statutes, and the land did, in fact, vomit them out, including Israel. The Holy Decree illustrates two vital things and aspects of God. One is our dependence on him, and two is our inborn knowledge of God's eternal plan in the revealed creation. We know this stuff in our hearts. Do we want to face it? Another key phrase here is the land I am bringing you to. God places and establishes us where he wills. Our job is to find contentment in the provision and placement of where he has placed us. For the ancient Jews, this involved, of course, very specific laws and sacrifices, a shadow of what Jesus would institute later, Levitical laws are the first redemptive statutes that vividly illustrate five of the points of salvation and the process of salvation. They illustrate, one, the paying of a penalty, a sacrifice, two, an acknowledging of God's good gifts, three, an enjoying of God's fellowship, four, applying the atonement to oneself, and five, making full restitution. These principles support and reveal a kingdom of holiness and peace, the same principles that Jesus will come, came to establish forever. Just as the command for dependence on God was for the ancient Jews reveals who they are, our commitment to the redemptive work of Jesus defines who we are. Across the centuries, it reflects a common dignity, duty, and danger as believers. But to be content is not simple. First Timothy 6, 6 and 7 states it pretty clearly what contentment truly is. But godliness with contentment is a great game. We brought nothing into this world and we cannot take a thing out of it. We're pressured to believe by the world all around us that status, job, possessions, even the most, our children, are what are the most important. 
But too often, if we place these things ahead of God, the result is nothing but anxiety and worry and fret. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who had enough anxiety in his life for many of us, has a good quote about contentment and anxiety. Be not anxious. Earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us into thinking that they can provide security and or freedom from anxiety. Yet all the time, they are the very source of the anxiety. So the gift of bringing you into the land is a design for contentment contingent upon obedience. We don't like contingencies. They cramp our style, they get in the way, they take away our rights. But these contingencies are placed to check our sinful nature, for us to learn what true and holy contentment is like, to focus on his provision and not wander off searching for happiness down one of life's many rabbit holes. The principle in Leviticus here to remember is that every call for obedience throughout the Bible comes with a contingent, content, contingent consequence for failure. The cynic or the non-believer looks at that principle of obedience and says, well, this is just nothing more than a lifestyle bargain. God, you do something for me, I'll do something for you. Because I, after all, I am a good person, right? You've probably all heard that argument with people. I have. But the committed Christian realizes <laughs> that you don't bargain with a sovereign God. There is no bargaining. Our conscious decision to be content, content or not where he has placed us is where our bitterness can fester and our pride becomes sin. In the orchards of my grandfather, I was not content. I was focused on my circumstance. I had the short term in full view and I lost view of the long term. I could not see the life lessons at the time. Most, many times we can't. But the hard work was there for my personal maintenance and sustaining. The opposite view of contentment is equally as dangerous. We must not mistake contentment for complacency. The former is a gift. The latter is a sin. Complacency is the avoidance of things or an indifferent attitude. Not facing the reality of whatever present situation you may be in. To be complacent is to ignore God's gift of the creative reasoning abilities that are innate in each one of us. Where he directs, motivates, and allows our creative processes to better ourselves and all those around us. This leads us away, if we do this, it leads us away from complacency and towards contentment. It is part of the reasoning and godly problem solving that we are to execute in our homes, our family, and in our church. To do this, we have to be vigilant, we have to study the word, be covered in prayer, ensure that our decisions are led by the Holy Spirit. It's hard work to be consistently walking in the light of Jesus. But it is our dignity. So how can we, like the old Jews of old, surrounded by the enemy, be separated? And the answer is rather simple. It's by our faith. 
Faith is that driving force in every human soul. Every human has faith in something. Even the atheist has faith there is no God. It is the spark that keeps hope alive where all else fails. A delicate spark that, if not nurtured, can be snuffed out by the winds of anxiety within the world. Jesus warns us about being anxious, Matthew 6:34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day in its own trouble. Leaning on our faith in Jesus is what gets us through each day, what turns that spark into a flame. We must measure the tribulations of the world by Jesus' yardstick. The world measures, and we can see this in easily in the news today, the world measures by racial, ethnic, economic, and fearful increments. Fear being the most divisive and dangerous for in for them all because it leads to bitterness and isolation. Fear zeroes in to disrupt our sense of security and well-being. Like the people in this passage, our security should only be in God. And in that will be evidence of our dignity. Move along now to Leviticus 24 and 25. But I have said to you, you shall inherit the land and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. A very direct command, very explicit, and very easy for us to look at. What do we have to worry about animals? I mean, come on, this doesn't apply to us. But by earthly standards today, most political and religious leaders like to blur the lines when it comes to what is right. To replace what is right with what is tolerant. In advancing their agenda, they often magnify the marginal and de-emphasize the central. While we are called to be gracious and merciful to others, it is not a call to be indulgent or turn away from controversy or even compromise. We're also not on earth to immerse ourselves solely in the Christian community, either for protection or just well-being. It is important, and we need to nurture it, but we cannot literally, literally act like it doesn't exist out there. Our duty is not only to see wrong behavior, but to speak boldly against the consequences. When we do, we become God's provision for one another. All opposition is still within God's plan, even when our leaders appear to move in the wrong direction. To illustrate this, we only need to look at the life of Isaiah, the prophet. He was surrounded by evil on all sides. Thousands of worshipers of Baal hated his guts and cursed him daily. He endured the terrifying reign of Jezebel and Ahab and who sought his life. And he fled into the wilderness and lived on a subsistence existence for years, God sustaining him. 
And when he thought it was all over and he was the only one left, God showed him 7,000 more who also had not yielded to Baal. In the New Testament, we can look at Paul and we can say, look at the opposition Paul had, what he faced. But in fact, because of that opposition, the gospel multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and had a tremendous impact. But let's get back to prosperity. God's telling his people that they will inherit a land that is rich, a land that comes with responsibilities not unlike those given to Adam in the garden. Now, I don't know if you've experienced this or not, but every inheritance you ever receive comes with a responsibility or an obligation. And too often, we freely accept the gift, but we don't like the obligation. Just as these people were his possession, God is now giving the land as a possession to them. It's a great blessing. But what does land flowing with milk and honey really mean? It's obviously very important because in Scripture it's mentioned 23 times between Exodus and Ezekiel. Writings in antiquity tell us that this phrase was common, referring to abundance and prosperity throughout many cultures. But if we look closely, we will see that God's plan in milk and honey is unfolding a, a small detail and key to his design that is basic and vital. When Moses, when Moses is told by God that he will lead them to prosperity, it's not just a metaphor. It's a key element in the ordering of the creation under God's design, one that has been there since the garden, that of a perpetual cycle of life for the bees, the livestock, and for the humans who have domain over this cycle. Bees pollinate alfalfa for the cattle, the pollen then blooms, the pollen is then taken from the blooms and provide honey for the bees. Milk is a sustaining element for every mammal on the planet. Honey has ancient healing and medicinal uses and has been used by man for centuries, probably since the garden itself. So for man, milk sustains and honey maintains energy, nutrients, vitamins. For the land, cows graze, land, and then they help replenish the land. I'll let you use your imagination on that one. <laughs> While bees pollinate the blossoms and ensure continued growth of practically every crop we see. It's a simple cycle, but it is evidence of God's promise and providence in two basic things milk and honey. In redefining this promise, he is reaffirming his love and provision, and if they follow his ways, prosperity, God always sustains. The second part of this verse, then, then comes the warning. <clears throat> Separating the clean from the unclean. It speaks of beasts particularly. Now, this was germane at the time because Obviously, the nomadic nature of what these Jews were facing and what would they would face in the next 40 years in the wilderness, wealth and prosperity was going to be measured solely by livestock. So it was not only wise, but it was financially uh, acute to separate the good from the bad. This was also a command for holiness. 
because good and bad animals have medical concerns. And this was part of setting up that perfect society. These prohibitions on the Jews would maintain their health and vigor. A blessing that was even evident before this command was given, as if you remember when they were still in Egypt, the population of the Jews grew much faster than the population of the Egyptians, to the point that Pharaoh was fearful of their numbers. Notice that the people are not the only things set apart. Animals are set apart as well. Applied to our lives, we do not have to, uh, we have things that we need to set apart as clean and unclean as well. We not, may not have to worry about livestock, birds, and snakes, but there are aspects of modern day life where the wisdom would tell us to consider the cleanness or uncleanness of things. We get in debates all the time about what is clean and unclean, and Paul tells us quite clearly in the context of those arguments against God's design, 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Powerful command. It's not easy for Christians to avoid difficult topics today. It seems too often that wherever, whatever middle ground there was for reasoned discussion has been wiped away in what appears to be insanity. Too often the cause of that insanity is nothing more than pride. We want our way. Our godly ability to reason is crushed by anger. We emphasize our interests, which are the marginal, and we de-emphasize the central, which is God's glory. The principle that's important for us out of this Leviticus passage is vigilance and judgment based on God's word removes detestable desires. Holiness puts pride away. It concentrates on things of central importance and keeps the marginal where it belongs. But as all things, it's hard work. Holiness will order our thoughts away from passive indifference and onto a path of righteousness. Many areas of the Christian world today, the fight for holiness has been ignored or lost. If holiness were embraced, it would surely bring back God's centrality and it would marginalize those things that now divide us. Perhaps a new generation of Christians will grasp this danger better than we. Revival is always possible within our age, but the turning from our ways and healing of our, healing of our land is what's necessary, and it truly is our duty. The last section is uh, 26, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, I the Lord am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. What's it like to be a possession? Most of us would see the phrase as a form of enslavement, denying our ability to make our own decisions, to go our own way. Yet the idea that the Lord is holy and we are his possession should be a great comfort to us. It's mentioned 12 times in Leviticus alone. Think about your possessions. What do you do with them? Well, most of us, we keep them separate. We keep them safe. The more valuable they are, the more separate they are. 
we're on guard against the thief. God keeps us safe as well, but we are the ones that still must be vigilant. Can we say that we are as vigilant to build the spiritual ramparts against evil's assault as we are to protect our own possessions? To neglect our spiritual fortress is our danger. Neglect of the separation of holiness and provision of grace are to align ourselves, the option is to align ourselves with a culture of death. A culture that not only will consume us, but will also disrupt and destroy the the cyclical creative blessing of creation. Yes, <laughs> the land will vomit you out. If we do not take sacredness of all life seriously, then we endanger all life cycles. Without the light of God, the first element of creation, there is only darkness, and in that darkness is chaos, and in chaos there is only hopelessness. And finally, hopelessness gives way to bitterness, and starts the deadly spiral towards eternal separation from God. The human toll for rejection of God's provision is not hard to see. If farmers overwork the soil, the land is exhausted. If livestock is laced with too many antibiotics, the cattle become toxic to humans. If radiation towers continue to sprout, they allow us to watch movies faster but medical science is now questioning whether they interrupt the blood flow to our brains. And the bees are dying. Is this progress? The consequences of the misuse of God's prosperity, the results may not be immediate, but they always prove costly. The Bible tells us this from nation after nation after nation who have done so. Wrapping it up, providence. Sometimes it's hard to see with the clamor of daily life. From the moment you turn on radio, TV, get onto your podcasts, the laundry list of what's wrong with the world seems never ending. God's holy and wise works seem far off. We direct our attention to the preponderance of the world's circumstances. We concentrate on the marginal and ignore the central. We long to be content, but we find only anxiety. Is it hopeless? Of course not. But it should force us to come face to face with the reality that our need and dependence on God and God's provision is vital dependence upon, and our vital dependence on one another. Not unlike the cows and the bees, we only need to look at the details of our lives to see his marvelous workings to grasp the contentment in his promise of something as basic as his design for milk and honey. To celebrate what he has already provided and the blessings of his grace, perhaps even some which we have not fully acknowledged. For to, appropriate, to appreciate our faith, to, for our, oops, excuse me, our faith should be evident to others. How our life, our interactions bring that spark of the spirit. The hope that we bring hope that defeats human anxiety. And in that hope, a holy attitude of grace that will in fact separate us and people will notice. 
Yes, the world will crash and burn. And yet in the providence of God, in the bosom of Jesus, where we find ourselves, there we are blessed, delivered, promised, and possessed by a holy God through our obedience to him and him alone. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your, your word out of Leviticus. We thank you, Lord, for all your blessings, provisions, how you keep your promises. We have but to look and understand and ponder it in our own creative ways, Lord, that we may see your providence, grace, and mercy. We thank you, Lord. And we praise you for this day as we come to you, we start to come to your table. And we praise you and thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.